Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed the opening song, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore. And you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we are all about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal is really to lift everyone's voice, big and small, all around the world so that we can serve those living with dementia and their families much, much better. So if you have a story to tell, you have a business, a book, maybe you've written a film, uh, a song, whatever, come and talk to me. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear what you're doing and, um, and spread the word. Also, I want to thank each and every one of our listeners. You see, your loyal support has just been fabulous. You've gotten us known all around the world. So I hope you'll continue to like, click, and share our shows on Facebook and Twitter and any place else that you feel is advantageous. We also have a YouTube page or on LinkedIn and, and so forth. We really feel that building a sense of community takes all of us and you know, all of us have these sphere of influences, and um, there's a lot of people out there that haven't told anyone that they're dealing with dementia with their family or their circle of friends or maybe themselves personally, and we need to be there to support them to let them know it's okay to have that conversation and it's okay to reach out for for resources, and that's that's why we're here. So today's conversation, we are going to be talking with the um, founder of Savonics. Malia is just a a fascinating conversationalist who is uh, really making a difference in the world of dementia. But before I introduce her, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. They're just doing such a fabulous job helping people all around the world find memory cafes close to them and now even taking it a step further and breaking out which ones are virtual cafes and who can participate in those. I also want to give a shout out to Coral Health. They are um, giving away during COVID their uh, Music First and Coral Faith. Uh, So please check out Coral Health. That is C-O-R-O Health and you will get more information there. And don't forget, we are going to do another sing-along, 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 sing-alone with Barbara Lee Friedman of Music Memories of Minnesota on May 28th, and that's at 1 o'clock Central, so that's 2 Eastern, noon uh, Mountain, and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. 
and all are welcome to, to join us. We also have all of our dementia quick tips and dementia chats, which are conversations with, with a panel of people with dementia. Now it is time to finally introduce our guests, and I am so honored to have Malia Shervet with us. She is the CEO and founder of Savonics, and she has more than 20 years experience as a clinical neuropsychologist and neuroscientist, business leader, and entrepreneur. And at Savonics, uh, Malia drives strategies to address dementia globally with businesses and clinical leaders. So welcome, Malia. How are you doing today? Thanks. I'm, I'm good. Sheltering at home like the rest of the country and, you know, hoping that the dog doesn't interrupt our interview. <laughs> well, you know, the dog's part of the family. And so right. uh, one, of the, one of the good things that's coming out of this uh, whole COVID-19 thing is people's, people are becoming much more accepting and they're really liking actually seeing the real side of, of people who are talking. <laughs> so hey, that's definitely doing that, right? We're definitely getting glimpses into each other's lives that I, I, I know on our team, it's been wonderful. We've, um, we've gotten to know each other and we're not physically together, but yet we're getting to know each other better in, in these strange, because we're in each other's homes so much. And, and so it has been really, at least for us, it's been really interesting time. Yeah, no, I agree. I've had my granddaughters pop in on a couple of my video conferences and things too. So it just, you just never, never know. Well, you know, I, I always ask everybody when they um, join the conversation here, if they have been personally touched by dementia and, and I'm going to throw in the COVID since we're in that realm as well. Um, I've been personally touched by both. Um, so um you know, in, in what was not unusual, um, on my mother's side of the family, my, my biological grandmother died, died in childbirth in 1938, so I never knew her. Uh, but the woman who I knew as my grandmother uh, was my step, technically my step-grandmother, but, I, you know, she'd been married to my grandfather long before I was born. She was a really amazing woman, and she had worked um, in, 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 in uh, the media during World War II and actually lost her hand in a printing press um, but became an expert knitter. I actually have beautiful blankets and, and scarves and things that she knit for me when she was alive. I lost her to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I also lost my paternal grandmother um, to what was diagnosed as Alzheimer's at the time, but looking back, I think was probably a vascular dementia. It was 1985, so that was, that was mislabeled. Um, in the case of my paternal grandmother, um, that was really difficult. She lived with us for a long time, and, and I had been really close to her growing up. They were ranchers and farmers, and so I had spent uh, my summers running around wheat fields uh, and jumping in lakes with my cousins, and then um, when she became ill um, physically um, with some mobility limitations, she moved in with us um, when I was 13, um, really began to notice uh, the, the changes in, in her um, in her cognition. Um, I didn't know what that word was at the time, um, but losing both of my grandmothers and watching them both go into homes and visiting them frequently, seeing that other people weren't visited, you know, as a teenage girl, that really impacted me to see people so lonely. I, I play, I, I was a pianist growing up, so I used to go to the home, play the piano for my grandmother. She loved Gershwin. Um, and not a lot would reach her as her dementia got more progressed, um, but the music did. So that was just something that she really loved. And I noticed how other people 
would come and listen. And then the nuns would tell me that like, I was one of the few visitors, right? That, and so for, it, it really did shape um, me as a young person and, and it made me really dedicated to doing something about this disease. Um, and so that's kind of like, that laid the foundation for my career, really. It was laid very early. And um, in terms of coronavirus, I've, I've lost a family member um, and my husband and I were both sick. So we've both been through it and we're recovered for which we're both very grateful. Um, but we you know we've certainly, um, I have a sister-in-law and her husband who are physicians just outside of New York City. So they've been on the front lines of this for the last several months. And, um, and that's been really difficult. We've been really worried about them um, and also getting firsthand accounts of what they're seeing and and um, my sister-in-law losing several patients and she's an OBGYN, so she's lost mothers. Um, mm. And right after they gave birth um, and just having to go through that, it's been, um, you know, but our families, we're tough stock, we're Midwesterners. So <laughs> we're pretty, my husband's from uh, Wisconsin and I'm from Kansas originally. So I, I think we're, we're pretty, we're a pretty tough group of people. Um, and I, I, we've really come together um, to support each other during this time. Um, and I, I really, I feel like even though we're going through a lot, we're some of the lucky ones. Yeah. Well, it really is a growing period. And I thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I was talking with people the other day and they said, gosh, you know, I, I don't know anyone who's had COVID. And I'm like, well, consider yourself lucky, you know, because <laughs> that could still change, you know, and uh same with dementia. A lot of people say, well, you know, I haven't been touched by it, but yet, I mean, I know I can go to a conference and talk to a thousand people and ask six questions and I'll have everyone stand to begin with. And, you know, has this person had it and this person had it and out of a thousand people, there might be two or three people left that are yeah. still standing that haven't been touched. And so people are kind of shocked when they, when they look around. And I think uh, with COVID, uh, we, we could get that point with either people being ill or who have been who have actually passed away from it. So um, I, I'm really interested in learning more about your company, uh, Savonics, and you know, what motivated you to start the company? I have a, a pretty good clue now with your history with dementia, but can you tell our listeners about the company and, and why you felt it was important to do what you're doing today? Yeah, so, you know, when I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to grow up and be a brain doctor. That's a really nice generic term that you come up with and you, you don't know anything when you're a teenager. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I studied psychology and, and did some pre-med courses um, at University of Kansas uh, when I was there and um, wasn't really sure if I wanted to be an MD or to pursue um, like neuropsychology, um, which I didn't even know about as a teenager. But then, of course, when I got into college, realized was classically the profession that has um, assessed cognition, diagnosed dementias, treated dementias, um, done things, treated stroke, right? So all of these, what we would think of like disorders of the brain. And, um, you know, that was the, the, the route that I ended up going. And I combined it with health psychology because I was really interested in the impact of our lifestyle choices and, and, the, and our lifestyle factors and, and social determinants of health. I got really um, interested in public health a, a little bit along the way because um, to quote one of my mentors, Sandro, Sandro Galea, who was a medical doctor before he became a doctor of public health, um, he worked with Doctors Without Borders and um, 
he said he felt like he was just pulling people out of the river all the time. And he went into public health because he wanted to stop the people who were throwing him in the river to begin with. So, you know, I would say my, my interests intersects around uh, public health and, um, and dementia. And so that, that gave me a particular perspective on it. And I ended up at Stanford doing a lot of training. There was a point where it really hit me um, that if my grandmother, either of them were alive today, um, they couldn't afford me. Um, you know, neuropsychology is uh, typically not well covered by insurance. Um, it's not well reimbursed. And so maybe like 10% of the cost might be covered. And a cognitive assessment um, to determine early detection of, of dementia, say in your 40s or 50s, is thousands of dollars. Um, and so just not accessible. And, you know, I... I wanted to, I really looked at our population and, and a super aging society globally where today we have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of five and realized that we were going to be facing a, a public health crisis around dementia if, if there wasn't a scalable, accessible way to get to somebody like me. And there's only about a thousand board certified neuropsychologists in the US and Canada. So we're not going to solve this with specialists, with people. So that really got me thinking about how to productize big pieces of what we do um, in neuropsychology. So that's the testing, the reporting, um, and even diagnostic support. So providing diagnostic level support for, for nurses and doctors so that they can conduct a neuropsychological cognitive evaluation um, in, in a very short period of time. Um, so about 30 minutes from all the way from testing through to um, dementia, yes or no, right? So reaching that, asking a series of questions um, on the other side of the testing if there's impairment to determine um, the presence or absence of, of dementia. And it was, it was really just about um, that accessibility and that affordability for me. Um, and there, you know, and as an entrepreneur, I think. Um, also, I love the concept of proving that you can have a for-profit company that does a good thing in the world at the same time. And so I really loved that idea of conscious capitalism um, as well. And so those things really came together for me. And I made a decision to walk away from academic medicine and, and start Sabonics in 2014. Um, I left in, uh, academia. And then in 2015, um, we, uh, we incorporated the company. Wow. You know, you, you said a couple of things. Um, one is just about the, the accessibility and the cost factor. And I, I remember when my mom, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years. She was only diagnosed 20 years because first 10 years she was told it was her hormones. And, yeah. <laughs> and, my, and my mom would joke, this ain't my girlfriend's hormones, you know, <laughs> and she'd say, it's different. I know it's different. I'm talking to my friends. And, and so when she actually got diagnosed, I mean, she had to go through two half days of hell of testing yep. horrible and, and it was so unbelievably sad and frustrating she I mean she came out of there like a wet noodle um just exhausted embarrassed um mm -hmm. disgusted with herself wor yeah. worried about being a burden to everybody I mean it was just something to me that was so unnecessary to have to put her through because we all knew there were issues, you know, to begin with, and it was getting that label. So I love the idea of, you know, you're talking about helping people do tests in 30 minutes to come up with a conclusion. It's just yeah. like that alone, that, that, um, 
that saving the sanity of not just the person with the, the dementia uh, or potential dementia, but the whole family, it, it just, it's crushing. It is. It's a very high burden. And neuropsychology hasn't really adapted um, how we go about testing and diagnosing since the 1940s. The way that the clinicians are taught today is still this laborious pen and pen and paper testing. It is an antiquated process. We don't teach digital testing in our neuropsychology programs, which I do not understand why. Um, you know, the National Institute of Health came out with a toolbox for neuropsych testing years ago, but it's desktop and desktop computers are expensive. Um, you need something that could be done on a, on a pad or a phone you, because those are affordable um, computing devices, but also it's not well supported. I mean, I think the, 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 the reason that the toolbox hasn't been adopted is largely because it's just not well supported. Um, it's got one or two developers. They don't have customer support. They don't have onboarding support to help a clinic get it in there. They don't teach the nurses anything. We do all that. So neuropsychology consulting comes with our platform when a provider or a healthcare plan brings it in because we do, our neuropsychologists, myself and Dr. Collinson, we do with the primary care physicians and nurses what we did with our trainees when we were teaching. And, and that is to help them get comfortable with this testing and with the diagnosing because that does take a little bit of time and it's not the technical skill it's the emotional burden i think this is alzheimer's disease how do i tell the family how do i tell the patient what do i say how do i give that feedback i mean i remember the first time i delivered that diagnosis i i had a horrible day it was a early onset case she was in her 40s she had twin girls they were little it was awful it was just awful. I felt like I had just like thrown fire on this family, right? And and then you you have to, as a clinician, you've got that too. And none of the platforms or products that I saw in the market were dealing with this idea of, okay, if we're going to take the specialty practice and move it into primary care and move it into nursing, how are we going to not just get the patient tested and get a result. That's that's relatively easy. A lot of companies do that. What we do is different is we provide that specialty support up front for that comfort and that help getting used to doing this because it does take a little time and it's still always hard. It's never, it's like delivering a cancer diagnosis. You know, I might talk to my doc, my friends who are doctors and oncologists and we have, a, and it, and it, you're never just like, oh, okay, it doesn't matter. It's not if you're a decent human being. But you can develop a language for conveying the results, right? And you can develop um, a way of, of talking. And you get more comfortable with your own judgment. Like, okay, yes, I am comfortable that, that this is that's a mild cognitive impairment or it's dementia. And this is the kind of impairment. And I know how to talk about that with the patient and the family. Um, and I know how to walk through the care plan. You know, we, we produce care plans. And so, you know, we help our clinicians get comfortable with that. And it doesn't take a lot. Um, it's a handful of hours of, of consulting services that we provide when we bring the software in, into, a, into a company. But I do think it's, it's really important to do. And it, it's one thing that really, that really makes us quite different is that clinical expertise. Well, and I think one of the things that is, is also so important about it is, because I hear this from families all the time, it's like we got the diagnosis and that was it. I mean, there was like no, the bedside manner they could tell the doctor was uncomfortable with it. The resources weren't there, the care plan. It was just, here's your diagnosis, here's your next appointment, maybe a medication, and um, you know, we'll, we'll see you back here to Lou. 
And, and that I am still hearing all around the world is, yeah. is the majority of the cases. And then again, how long it takes somebody to actually get a diagnosis. So knowing that there is that support and I kind of, uh, I kind of almost relay what you're doing to is um, I do a lot of support groups and things now online and, you know, because of, of COVID and families coming in, they're like, I did it. You know, I, I did it. I didn't know I could do this, you know, but just having that feeling of I did it, I did it well from a clinician makes a huge difference the way their message is delivered, you know, how they feel stepping in and stepping out of that, of that patient's life, you know, and, and of that, uh, that appointment. And so, and, and nowadays, everybody expects customer service and support and transitioning. So to not have that is absolutely asinine. But, you know, we, we still have a lot of goofy things happening out there in the, in the real world. And so hopefully with telemedicine raising up too, you know, maybe this will lift you up even more so in terms of, in terms of that process because people are starting to get a little bit more comfortable in terms of how, how they're communicating with people and, yeah. um, and so forth. So... Can you tell us, um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the, the differences of your, your digital uh, cognitive assessment from others. Is, are there other digital assessments that are out there and actually being used? You mentioned the toolbox, but it's not really used much. Um, no, not in clinical care. A little more in research, um, but, uh, but not in clinical care. The scalability isn't there to do it in clinical care. Um, yeah, there's, there's companies um, that have been around a long time. Um, CNS Vital Signs has been adopted in some clinical care settings, but it's a desktop uh, assessment. And it's, all, it's just the user friendliness. And again, the clinic just, uh, you know, getting it integrated into the, into the workflows. Um, and then there's some newer companies that are doing um, what I would call more unorthodox type testing. So like eye tracking things and um, using your smartphone texting to determine if you have dementia. Um, no, there are some companies that have been doing testing for a while. So CNS Vital Signs is one. Um, they've been in the market a long time in clinical care, but without wide adoption. And looking at their product, I, I, I can understand why um, because of just workflow um, concerns and desktop. Um, there are newer companies that are, are doing more um, newer sort of not traditional neuropsychological type assessment, like eye tracking, um, which is a test of the hippocampus, um, which is really about uh, memory only. Um, and then, you know, things like, um, oh, we're gonna, you know, we can use the texting in your phone and, and your typing. Um, and those are, those are all interesting technologies, but I, I think that there's a, there's a, a fundamental gap in terms of adoptability because uh, CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, determine what is reimbursable. And when it comes to diagnosing dementia, they have set, they say that you must conduct a, a recognized neuropsychological assessment. Now, within the neuropsychological community, there are a set of tests that are sort of gold standards and accepted tests. So those are the tests that CMS is referring to. Now, this becomes critically important for two reasons, because it's, it's really great to get a fast, easy test into the hands of patients. But that's not going to happen if that test isn't reimbursable for our plans and our healthcare providers. They need to eat too, right? And that's how doctors and, and nurses get paid is through the reimbursement system, whether it's from the government or from insurance. And so for us, it was really mapping. Uh, we made sure to map. And again, we're clinicians. We're not researchers. And we're not 
we're not, I'm not running, we're not, I'm not a MBA, I'm a PhD. So I come at this from the practice element, right? How do we uh, map to the gold standards um, that are accepted in the medical community? And there are really two of them. One of them is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for Mental Disorders, which DSM-5 outlines very clearly um, the domains of cognition you need to test um, and how and, and, and typical tests that are, are sort of the medical gold standards uh, for those domains. So things like social cognition, things like attention, memory and, and executive function. And we've mapped our solution to the gold standards in DSM. And we're the only company that's done that. And I, I think that's pretty important because that's that clinical gold standard that a international working group of experts said, this is, this is how you go about diagnosing dementia. You do this kind of testing and this is what you're looking for, impairment below this level. And they really did a good job of defining that gold standard. And so we've mapped to that. The other one is CMS. And CMS says, okay, basically you got to meet the gold standard, but then you have to do these other things. Like we want to do a we want to do a, a quick depression screen. We want to do some activities of daily living. They say, in addition to the cognitive testing, there's these other data points you need to have as a clinician if you're going to actually write that diagnosis of dementia with or without complications in, into the medical record. And then it's up to the doctor. We don't do it. It's up to the doctor if they want to determine a type. Is it Alzheimer's type, Lewy body type, mixed type, vascular type? frontal lobe type, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, we're very different in that way because we're, we're mapped to the standards. Um, we took um, very well accepted, you know, many of these tests have been around 70, 80, 100 years now um, and digitized those gold standards. And so these are tests that are very well recognized in the medical community um, and accepted. So it's not just, it, and so it's not just that they're reimbursable with some medical acceptance. So. I think what's unique about Savonics is where we're just enough medical orthodoxy meets technology <laughs> that it works. And, and that's the thing about medicine. You can innovate, but you've, you've still got to root yourself in the science and the orthodoxy and the reimbursement uh, paradigm or adoption isn't going to follow. And so, you know, that was a, a real challenge for us and something we spent a lot of time working on. Um, when we when we develop the the platform, those are really important factors, and um, I I'm really like I said I'm really excited to have you on the show. We've been working on on this date for a while, and I know I was sick. I'm sorry. I did not want to do this with coronavirus. It would have been ugly in yeah. so many ways. <laughs> no, and and I think timing is everything. Everything happens at the <laughs> right time when it's supposed to. And, you know, now that even with uh, Corona and kind of the reopening, I think people are taking a little bit of a breath. Um, they can probably digest things a little bit easier too. Now, we, we are also hearing a lot about, you know, lifestyle and prevention. And what are some of the realities that you see in terms of lifestyle changes and um, preventing or, or slowing down dementia? So there was a, a great paper um, in 2017 from The Lancet, which of course is a debatable, is the, it's the Journal of the American Medical Association or Lancet, the best medical journal in the world. Might be, you know, The Lancet is very well recognized and they did a meta-analysis and then wrote a report um, looking at um, lifestyle and dementia risk. Uh, specifically, they were looking at Alzheimer's actually. And what they were able to determine is based on what we know today, um, around 35, maybe more percent or more of cases of dementia are preventable. Um, and they're preventable by the choices that we make. But 
the thing about it is we can, it's never too late to start um, making these changes. Um, so, you know, even if you're 60 years old and you've been smoking a long time and you quit, you're going to reduce your Alzheimer's risk immediately by quitting, even at 60. Now, obviously it would be better if you'd never started, but that's a poor argument for not making that change. And so we do see not only that life, so that lifestyle can build what we call reserve, but we also see that when we start to develop early symptoms, so early impairments and in, in, in memory tends to be a later symptom. Um, in fact, in 2014, Hessen and colleagues published a paper on Alzheimer's disease that showed that two years prior to a full diagnosis of Alzheimer's, that only 29% of patients were captured through a memory test, a memory impairment test, but 60% were captured through an executive function test. So executive function, thinking and planning, thought organization, and folks who are familiar with the disease start to nod when I say this, like, oh yeah, that was, that's, you know, and, and so a lot of times it gets misdiagnosed as something like, oh, it's the hormones or it's this, because doctors aren't trained under the primary care they're thinking memory, but they really should be thinking thought organization, planning, you know, um, processing speed, those subtle changes that we see much earlier before memory becomes obvious uh, as a symptom. So when we talk about lifestyle, there are really, there are really nine big things. There's uh, untreated hearing loss. Um, there is um, early education. So this is something we have to get on when we're, when we're babies. Um, so there's actually a correlation between things like preschool and lower dementia risk. So the earlier we start to build the brain up, because when we exercise the brain through the acquisition of knowledge, um, it helps us form neural connections. And so when we, when we build a more robust brain as a child, we're creating reserve, right, for the future. And so early education is a big piece. Hypertension, so blood pressure, high blood pressure is a risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. De uh, having depression during your lifetime that, that is not um, uh, treated is a risk factor. Physical inactivity is actually the big one. So I'm going to talk a lot about exercise here today and then smoking. And I think during COVID-19, the other, the one I really want to call out is that in the elderly, social isolation um, is, a, is a major risk factor for both the development and the progression of dementia. So I, I'm worried in this current environment that we're going to see um, not just coronavirus and our elderly impacting them, but also um, um, we're going to see um, a progression and an escalation of, of dementia because our elderly are so at risk. And so like my mother's 82 and she's at home by herself and we FaceTime every day, but a FaceTime isn't a hug. And, you know, and her, she's very social. Normally she cooks meals on wheels for her community and volunteers at the local school. And so all those things that she, that she does to keep that brain active and her body active are not available to her right now. And so, you know, looking at, looking at these things, these are the risk factors. Um, and so if you, if you look at exercise, um, this is actually the big one. And, and the reason exercise is the big one is physical exercise where you get your heart rate up. So cardiovascular exercise is the only thing that neuroscience has ever been able to prove causes us to grow new brain cells, form new neural connections. It's called neurogenesis. And this again, builds that cognitive reserve. So when we're doing it when we're young, we're building cognitive reserve. And then as we do it, as we age, what we see is that we continue to generate 
more neural connections, we continue to have longer telomere length, we continue to have better neural connectivity well into old age if we maintain our physical activity and we get our heart rate up at least 30 minutes a day. It is the number one most fundamental thing that anyone can do to prevent dementia. And, and when we have people who start to have symptoms start exercise programs, we've actually seen mild cognitive impairments reverse fully just by the implementation of a, a simple exercise program, like a walking program, a, a gardening program, or a Tai Chi program. And there's been numerous studies published on this. Um, and, you know, this is really powerful stuff. So if you, you know, there's an incredible, um, it's a, Polidori, I think was the author. And what they saw is that women who had the highest movement um, had better cognitive tests than those, um, those who didn't that that were um, that were sedentary, um, and the confidence interval was really high for these things. Um, it was about a ninety five percent confidence interval. So that's really powerful data. The that's like the number one thing. It's it when I give talks at like AAIC, the Alzheimer's Conference, or other other events, I always get asked like, is there one thing I can do right now to reduce my risk? And the, there's a lot of things people are doing, but I this is like at the top of my list. This and quitting smoking if you smoke because those are like the biggies. Um, cause smoking carries about a 60% increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so the risk for Alzheimer's with smoking is actually, um, on par with to higher than your risk for lung cancer with smoking, which doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, and I know like from my mother, she, you know, like a lot of women of her generation, she smoked for a long time and blew off a lot of the risk factors. Even when my father developed emphysema, who was also a smoker. But when there was a huge study, you know, because there's a lot of Alzheimer's in our family that came out about Alzheimer's and smoking, my mother got a nicotine patch the next day. She was like, I don't, she's seen this disease and that's not how she wants to go. You know, I mean, you know, I, I think none of us do. This is a, a dread disease. Most of us would rather lose a limb, lose our eyesight, because even in those situations, you maintain your identity, your ability to make decisions for yourself. You know who you are, where you are, and you can have some control over your life. But when you have dementia, you lose those things. And that is, you lose the things that are core to how we think of ourselves as humans. And that's, I think, why it's such, like, such, such a scary disease. But, you know, those are the, the, nine, the nine risk factors that matter. The cool thing about exercise, by the way, is it reduces your risk of other risk, of other risk factors. So if you exercise, you're not, probably not going to be obese. You're probably not going to have hypertension. You're much less likely to have diabetes. You're much less, much less likely to have depression. So it's going to actually, one thing actually knocks out about six of the nine risk factors right away, which is the, why it's so powerful. So if I have one message for your audience members today, and it doesn't, I go to the gym, I work out, I ride a bike, I swim, but you don't have to do that. Take the dog for a walk. Go for a leisurely bike ride with your family. Go out and garden. You know, um, it doesn't have to be a workout at the gym. You just got to get that heart rate up and you got to move and you got to get the blood flow into the brain. Well, and I think that that's wonderful. One thing I wanted to ask you was when people come up and ask you, what's the, what's the one or two things that I can do? What is their response? You know, because it seems like there's this, and I know I'm one of them when it's like, oh, exercise ask me to exercise and yep. and I'm like I don't have time and I'm going to be 61 next month and I sit way too much you know I'm on this computer sometimes 14 hours a day 
not healthy, have had some back issues now that I knew was coming. I could feel them coming, but now it's like, okay, now I have a couple twisted ribs and now I really have to do something. You know, this is, this is getting ridiculous because I don't want to live like this. And, and I know with, uh, you know, being in the house even more, I've got to get out and do walks and do whatever. And you know, I've ordered my my raised desk, so I'm not going to be sitting all the time. I'm standing, standing right now at my raised desk. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you because it's just like I, I know that I, I, I can't avoid it anymore. It's just, it's ridiculous, and I don't want to be in pain. And I sure as heck, you know, don't want the, I don't want dementia either. You know, my mom lived with it for 30 years, and she says her mom had it, but we still don't know that for sure. Um, but. I'm just interested because I know when I go out and I speak and I say the same thing to people and there's always this, Oh, uh -huh. well, that's not really what I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> what they want to hear is I can take this vitamin and it will solve the problem. And, and, yeah. and that's, you know, I think, um, everybody's looking for the silver bullet. I like to say with dementia, you're, there is no silver bullet. There's just a lot of lead bullets. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do, but none of them is like, the whole, the end all be all exercise is the biggest one. Um, you know, it's what I, what I, I, I was raised by world war two generation parents who were pretty solid people. And, um, something that my mother has said to me a thousand times comes back to me when, when folks talk to me about this, which is if you want to do something, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. And, you know, for me, I, I run an internet startup company that has offices in, hold on, one, two, three, six time zones around the world. Um, so it's 24-7 operation. I'm not kidding. Like, as I'm going to bed, my team in Singapore is, like, texting me going, hey, can you get on the phone for a minute? It's constant. And I exercise every single day for an hour. An hour. And, and Reynold, my marketing director, who's setting it on this call, is, I can see him nodding because he knows it's true. And it's in my calendar. So that's part of the secret is I calendar my exercise the way that I calendar this interview with you. It's in there every day. One thing that serves as a reminder to me. Two, it keeps people from pushing stuff into that. I, when I hired a new EA and she started scheduling things during my workout, I didn't even talk to her about it. I just started deleting appointments. And she finally, she was like, what are you doing? I said, no, no, uh -uh. that is like, treat that like I'm in church. It is, that is, that is like my religion every morning and you cannot interrupt it. It is vital to two things, my physical health, but also my mental health. And my grandmothers both had Alzheimer's and I'm not getting it. So into the pool or onto the bike or out for a walk, you know, um, I go. And if I'm, having a day where I just kind of feel a little down or low, I'll just do a little yoga and stretch, but I move and, you know, I get it. It's, it's a time commitment, but we all, we're all making choices every day about how we're going to spend our time. This usually feels to people like something they can start tomorrow, but sometimes tomorrow becomes 10, 15, 20 years. The good news is it's never too late to start ever, 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 ever. And the, the evidence shows that. The evidence also shows you don't need to do what I do, which is I'm a triathlete. So I run swim bike and you don't have to do that. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm pretty competitive. So that's just like my nature. Um, plus it motivates me like competing motivates me. So, but 
that doesn't motivate everybody. So you have to find what motivates you. Maybe it's spending time with your dog or your grandchildren and doing something fun with them. Maybe it's the fact that you love flowers and so gardening is, is the thing or you love growing your own vegetables like my mother does and like that's your thing, right? And so that motivates you to get out. Like my mother spends more time weeding her garden and it is hard. If you've ever weeded a garden, this is hard work, like crawling around and pulling stuff out. She's eight years old. It's a lot. Of, she, I can, when she talks to me afterwards, she's out of breath. Um, but as far as like the pain and the things you were talking about, I have scoliosis. I have some injuries from a couple mountain biking accidents and things in my neck. Um, but I've noticed that when I move, I actually feel better um, because I get the muscles going and they're warm and I can stretch. It's difficult. I'm not going to say it's the easiest thing in the world to do. What I will say is once you actually make a habit of it, you feel so darn good. Like on the days that I can't do it because I'm on an airplane to Singapore for 18 hours, I notice, I notice how I feel. I notice my mood. Like I notice, my team notices it. My husband and family are like, oh, you need to go exercise. You're just <laughs> grumpy. Um, and so it's like forming, the, it's like anything. It's like forming a habit takes time and you just have to make your, it's like, it's, you have to make yourself do it. The thing that, the reason that I get motivated is, is, Actually, I remember like yesterday, um, I woke up here, I'm in Idaho um, by myself because my husband's traveling right now. He had to go back to our place in San Francisco for a couple things. And it was like really rainy and, uh, and, and he was gone. And I just felt like, oh, I'm going to go outside by myself. But I was like, all right, that's it. I'm going to put my biking clothes on. I'm going to get on the bike. And like the first couple miles, I just felt sluggish and just like, Bleh. and then my heart rate got up and, um, I drove, I, I biked by some elk, um, and there was, um, a woodpecker and I started to notice the mountains and I started to notice the wildlife and I, um, and I felt my mood just lift. The sun was coming up over the mountains. It was beautiful. And there was just this element of being in nature and being so glad to be alive that I would have missed out on if I hadn't gotten out that day. And it's memories like that that helped me do it again um, the next time. And so I try to remember those things, like the pleasure of that. Um, and that's my mom with the weeding. She's like, I have a weed-free garden. <laughs> right? Well, I think one of the things too with, with exercise and just self-care in general is, especially in the U.S., people kind of look at it as selfish you know, there's that, there's that tag associated to it instead of it's, yeah. it's good, healthy living. And it's something that should be incorporated. And, you know, maybe it's an excuse, but I, I mean, I hear a lot of people say that with busy lives when they're taking care of so many different people and, you know, um, working. And I mean, there's a lot of different things and it's like, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll push that over. I'll push that over. So I love that you have set your boundaries and said, you know, to your staff, no, this, this doesn't move. This doesn't move. And I think you're right. I've heard people say, and I've even had people tell me, wow, that's incredibly selfish of you. And I'm like, is it? Because I'm mentally healthy and physically healthy. So I'm going to be around to see the, all the little peeps, nieces, nephews, everybody in my family grow up. I am more emotionally available to my team and to my family because I take care of myself. I think, you know, my husband was 
hit by a car in 2009 and he went through nine neurosurgeries, got, he almost died at the accident, then got MRSA, almost died again, had to learn to walk again. I was a full-time caretaker for him for several years um, when he was um, not ambulatory, unable to walk. He had to learn to walk again. He was told he wouldn't, would never walk again. Um, and, and, you know, that was actually a point where I really realized in how much, how important, like I was like a well that he needed to pull from. So, because I had to care for him, I had to feed him, push his medications, do all those things. And I was working full time. Um, and I stopped exercising for a couple of weeks and I was just frankly not pleasant to be around. Um, I had no, the well was dry and there, you can't get water from a dry well. And if we're caring for others and we don't take care of ourselves, we become a dry well. And whether that's a physical thing like my husband went through or it's dementia or it's a young child, you know, modeling for our children, the fact that it's a good to take care of ourselves physically and mentally is actually teaches them good habits, right? It, and it also gives them a parent or a caretaker who has water in their well to give back out. Um, when we run ourselves dry, we, we're, we can be there for no one. And, you know, I was so lucky. I had a mother who was like, you know, I asked her like, what should I look for in a husband when I was, you know, young woman, like, how do you determine? And she goes, you know, you should focus less on finding the right person, uh, finding the right person and more on being the right person. And I'll never forget that, you know? Um, and it just, like re, re, and she's a person for others. She does meals on wheels. She's like always doing things for other people. But I also saw her do things for herself that, and when I would talk to her about it, she would use those analogies. She's like, well, I got to keep water in the well, right? There's not going to be anything for anybody, for me to give to others if I don't keep myself full. And there's a lot of ways people do that. Spirituality can be one of them, right? Meditation can be one of them, physical exercise. But we all need to make sure, especially if we're caring for someone with dementia, which I've done by helping care for my grandmothers and then caring for my husband who's physically injured, we have to keep that well full when we're a caretaker. And it's not selfish. Um, it's necessary um, because we, we can only be a person for others once we've actually really made sure that we have that, that reservoir within ourselves um, from which to give. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with you. Uh, one thing I have to clarify is when you were talking about the study, was that the ASSIST study or is this another study? Um, there's lots of studies we're doing, but the, I'm glad you brought up the ASSIST study because um, I know we're about out of time. Um, but the ASSIST study is a, in partnership with Boston University School of Public Health, and it's the first ever population health study of cognition and lifestyle. So what we're looking at is across all ages, we're doing a cohort study. So 20, 21 years of age and all through end of life. Um, and we're looking at the relationship between um, lifestyle factors and certain health conditions and cognition across the lifespan. We understand a lot about lifestyle and dementia, which I was talking about earlier, but these are based on small studies of a couple hundred people. We're looking to recruit a couple hundred thousand people so that we can look at a population level at what this looks like and really start to understand at what age does, does the progression of cognition, cognitive impairment, especially related to certain lifestyle factors, really start to emerge and look at, look at that data. Um, we're integrated with the Apple Health app um, for this study, so that's really cool. Um, and you can sign up for it at, at assist study, just like the word assist study.org. 
um, takes about 45 minutes of time and you can do everything from home. So there's a health questionnaire then you've got to download our cognitive assessment app and take a cognitive assessment. And um, we're also looking at social determinants. So we get your zip code because we're looking at things like, um, is there a relationship between food deserts, access to healthcare, all of which map to zip code um, and cognition over the lifespan. So this is really a comprehensive uh, public health look at cognition and aging. Wonderful. And you said that was assiststudy.org? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. wonderful. Now, I, I want to know what, um, what kind of future plans you have for, for your company, and then, uh, and then how do families, you know, access your, your testing system? Is that something that they can get referred to through your website, or do they go directly to their, their doctor for a referral? So those, those two things, what, what are your future plans, and then we'll Kind of wrap up with the with the family access. My um yeah, I, you know the comp- plans for the company right now are just to continue to expand access through our, our business partnerships that we work with insurance companies, we work with providers, we also work with medical food and pharmaceutical companies um, in partnership, going to market with them. So we do a population level health screening with several partners in Japan, which has a much higher rate of dementia than anywhere else in the world. So we're in that market and we're also now expanding our partnerships in, in the United States in that way. So traditionally, we're not, we're not selling our product directly to consumers. So you can't go buy a Savonics test um, if you um, directly, um, but we do make our testing um, available. There's, if you participate in the assist study, that's completely free. And so you can go and get um, a full assessment through the, through the assist study free. Um, if you don't want to participate in clinical research, which some folks don't, um, we are also doing um, a handful of um, more data-driven um, projects in the market. And I believe on our homepage on our um, savonics.com, there's a test yourself button. And so if you hit that test yourself button, you can take um, a short version. It's not the full assessment, but it is a short version of our assessment um, that gives you a, a complete, um, you actually get a personal summary report. So you'll get um, a neuropsychological report of your results, uh, percentile scores, um, and, and those kinds of things. Um, so that is available to folks, um, and and you know we're just looking to grow our 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 research and our and our business partnerships for access, just create access, um, and that's how um, folks right now can access it if it's not available through their doctor. So a question for you: When people go to um, assiststudy.org or they take the shorter version. How private is their information or, you know, is everybody uh, in the world going to know, Lori LeBay just went in and took this test, you know, I mean, I know yeah, that, that's yeah, it. We are, we are, so we, um, we're a, a, a SOC 2 and, and HIPAA level uh, secure company. We don't, um, we do ask your permission to reach back out to you if you, uh, if you have impairment to participate in other research. So that might be, look, we find that you have, you know, you show up with a certain kind of impairment. And we know that there's a good clinical trial out there that might help you. So we ask permission to reach back out and say, hey, you know, um, there's this, hey, you know, Jane or John or whoever, there's this study that you're qualified to join if you'd like some help. Um, so we do do a lot of clinical trial um, access and referral. We're part of clinical trial match at alzheimers.org. Uh, so um, that's actually something we do, but we don't sell like you're not going to get on a marketing list other than ours. Like we might reach back out to you and say, Hey, you know, we're upgrading the app and we just launched this new test. If you'd like to try it, or we're doing this market research, if you would like to take part in it with us, but it's going to be very focused on, you know, 
like it's going to, it's going to be from us about our products or something you've shown interest in, but we don't resell your information or, or anything like that. Um, so we are considered a healthcare company. Um, and we, we function underneath, um, those, those regulations around data privacy. Okay. I figured as much, but I thought it's always good to good ask. It's no, it's good to ask. And, you know, and there's actually so many digital health companies this, these days that aren't clinical, they don't work with hospitals and, and insurance companies the way we do. So we have to go through a lot of audits of, of data privacy to work with, you know, these, these companies because they also are audited and function under certain data uh, restrictions and requirements. Everything's encrypted. You know, it's pretty typical healthcare data security. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's the way we operate. So we're not, we're not selling people's data to anybody. Okay. Anything that we didn't cover that, that we should have? Anything we missed? I think you got it all. Wonderful. Well, this was just a fascinating interview and I appreciate your, your personal stories and experience because I think that that just adds so much and makes it a much more authentic conversation and one that people can relate to. Um, so thank you not only for your time and expertise and um, just your motivation to, to really make a difference in this world. It's very inspiring. So appreciate it very much. So your website is uh, Savonics and that's just S-A-V-O-N-I-X.com. Yes. And then people can email the company by just info at Savonics.com uh, as well. And then I'm going to be posting a, a video um, that you gave me about the company as, as well. We'll, we'll note that. So again, thank you. Thank you so much for all you're doing. And I look forward to watching you um, grow forward and, and expand your business because it really is so, so needed. I, I'm very excited about, about your company and your approach. I mean, this might kind of sound silly, but to me, more level-headed. I mean, it just mixes all the variety of pieces and it just, it makes sense in terms of your approach and making sure that people are comfortable at all levels with this and not just, you know, here's a, here's a cute new toy, go play with it and, and figure it out. But you're really there to help support. And, and I love that it's, uh, that it's global as well. Um, yeah, I had to be for me, had to be for me. The whole point was anybody, anytime, anywhere. So that was actually really important. Well, I just think there's so much to learn from, you know, just everybody around the world. And I think you can grow faster and, and learn more and just be more progressive when you're more inclusive. So um, again, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having me and have a wonderful day. You too. Bye now. So in wrapping up again, I just want to thank all of our listeners. I just thought this was a fascinating conversation and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Each one of you, your likes, your clicks and shares again are very important because we all have our spheres and there's people in our spheres that, that need this information. So please pass this along and don't forget to go ahead and um, go to savonics.com and um, or assiststudy.org and, and take that free test as well. But you can ask your physician about Savonics, see if they have, have availability to that as well. And you can always reach out to me. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. That's the main website. And from there, up in the uh, upper right-hand corner, there's a big contact button. So you can call me. You can email me. 
uh, etc. Feel free to to follow us on all our variety of platforms. Have a blessed week, everybody, and thanks so much for being part of our community. Bye now.